0: series today, but I will not. It's one more week. So this is the third of now. It's a four-part series on Esther. And um, thanks, Anthony. (laughs) My wife's away this weekend, but she said, I'll kill you if you finish it all today. And uh, because there's just so much here, and it's so rich. And the question we're dealing with is, how does heroic, defiant faith get developed in the lives of ordinary people like you and me? In other words, what are the kind of things that God uses to move people like you and like me, like he does with Esther here, from just kind of ordinary folks, kind of lukewarm, kind of, you know, yes, believers, but nothing about them is marked differently than those around them, to really heroic, defiant faith. And Esther is a demonstration of that. And what are the kind of ingredients that God uses? now? Oz Guinness is a Christian uh, sociologist and thinker that studies the culture, writes quite a few books, and and, uh, he wrote recently, he said, as we approach the year 2000, the Church of Jesus Christ confronts the greatest challenge it has ever faced. On one side, followers of Jesus Christ confront in the modern world the most powerful culture in human history, the world's first truly global culture. He's referring to technology, internet, uh, music, movies, in other words, for the first time in history there's a global culture from Indonesia to the cities in Africa to Asia to New York City to rural areas in, the, in this country. It's one global worldwide culture and it influences everybody and you can find kids listening to the same music in Nairobi as you do in, uh, in Brooklyn. And He writes this, the cu- this culture has unprecedented power to shape the way people behave. And the damage it does to the faith of believers has already proven far greater than all the destruction of Christ-hating persecutors in history from Nero to Mao. And I think there's great truth in that. In other words, what we're confronting, you and I, as we walk out trying to follow Christ, 1998 in America, is he's saying is greater than perhaps anything believers have faced all through history. Because the pressure is so subtle, global, insidious, and comes at us from so many directions. It's very similar to Esther's world uh, uh, that she lived in, in Persia. If you remember, going back to a few weeks ago, if you go with me to chapter 1 and 2, if you remember, the king was a man named Xerxes. Persia was the world ruler. It It ruled all the way from India to Ethiopia, and it was the superpower of its day. The king was named Xerxes. He had a wife named Vashti. And at one point, he threw a party that lasted for six months and a week. It was a, a big party fest, at the end of which he called his wife forward to basically show her beauty to the court and his friends, to show her off as a beautiful sex appeal queen. But Queen Vashti refused, said no. The queen got furious and basically threw her out and got rid of Queen Vashti because she would not play according to the rules, if you remember from a few weeks ago, uh, which image is everything. You are how you look. And so he threw her out and decided to have a Miss Universe contest to find the most beautiful young virgin in all of the kingdom of Persia. And so uh, this beauty contest was held, Miss Universe, at the end of which um, one of the people who entered that contest was named Esther. Esther. And she was a believer, apparently a Jewish believer. And she was being raised by uh, Mordecai, who was her cousin, who had adopted her as a Roman when her parents had died. So um, what happens is she enters this beauty contest. If you look at chapter 2, verse uh, 10, it says that when Esther entered this beauty contest, it says she did not reveal her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Then verse 12... Before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, and she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. That is a lot of facelift and makeup. Okay, 12 months worth to get beautiful to come before the king. And uh, it says in verse 17, the king was attracted to her, uh, to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval. Basically, which means that uh, every night he would take a different woman to bed and decide who had the greatest sex appeal and who was most beautiful. And Esther won this beauty contest and became the new queen. She agreed to play by the rules of the culture, image is everything, and she wins the contest. So, and she's hiding the fact that she's a believer, hiding the fact that she knows God, hiding the fact that of her, who, who she is in terms of identity. And now what happens is she becomes queen, and by, the, by chapter three, we're introduced to the next major player who's named... Haman. I think these kids don't like my sermon. I'm really sorry. We'll work on it. All right. Chapter 3. It says, after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, a man named Haman. He becomes the next major character. And Haman is, becomes the number two man in the empire, the COO, chief operating officer. And Haman has got a colossal ego, and his family history goes back to hating Jewish people. And so when Mordecai, who is Esther's father now, refuses to bow down to Haman and honor him, Haman goes wild and decides he wants to not just kill Mordecai, he wants to kill all the Jews in the empire. And so he decides on a plan of genocide. And as we'll hear about next week, he pulls lots to pick out a day, 11 months later, and he convinces the king, basically bribes the king, says, listen, I'll get you a lot of money when we annihilate all the Jews. All their property will be confiscated and all the wealth will go to you. And so if you look in chapter 3, verse 13, the king agrees and dispatches are sent to all the countries and all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young, old, women, and little children on a single day. And so that becomes law. Now, at this point, it is a crisis. It is a full-blown crisis because there's going to be a genocide. It's going to happen on a single day, and the entire empire is preparing for that day for the annihilation of the Jewish people. It's a holocaust. Now, Mordecai and all the Jews are weeping and obviously totally distraught. Here's the most powerful man in the world with the most powerful army in the world who's decreed this, and now nothing is going to stop it. So Mordecai goes to Esther, who up to this point has been a shallow, superficial, self-absorbed young lady has not been had any courage in walking out of faith and he calls on her and in chapter 4 verse 8 it says he urges her to step up and to speak on behalf of the jewish people and uh, in fact the word urge in verse 8 of chapter 4 the word is often translated he commands her and we talked last week about You could say he crossed her boundaries, you know, he said, I don't want to push anybody's, I want to ask them to consider doing this line of action. If they say no, it's okay, it's not my business, it's their life. But he goes after her and repeatedly urges her and pushes her boundaries. And um, she resists and says no, initially. I will not risk my life. She says, anyone that gets asked to go into the king's presence without being invited can be killed. And in fact, the king's not invited me there for the last 30 days. And it's too risky for me. I don't want to do it. And then he pushes even more. Now go with me to verse uh, 13 and 14. Let's read it. And here he pushes her hard. And here's what he says to her. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time... Relief and deliverance for the Jews will come from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, for that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. And he says there, listen, honey, you will not be exempt from the consequences if you refuse to obey and step it up. In other words, you too will perish in this thing. You're not going to sit here as a queen, not with any consequences. And he goes, furthermore, if you don't step up, honey... I love you, but you will have missed your life's purpose and God will raise somebody else up to get his thing done. In other words, God's purpose will not be stopped by anyone, including you. So relief and deliverance will come from somewhere else. But understand this, God has chosen you and put you in this position for such a time as this. And God is sovereign over history. I know you weren't thinking about this, Esther. You were thinking about beauty queen. You were thinking about wealth. You were thinking about status. You were thinking about being this man's bride. And I even pushed you there. But I want you to know, God was over all of this. And he calls you there for right now. And he calls her to step up. And then what she does, she decides to go and to obey. And uh, so we saw the first of four ingredients that move her out of a shallow, self-absorbed, selfish little Christian life. And uh, if you put the first one up, uh, which we talked about last week, was if we're gonna move from to, into godly men and women, it's gonna take, I'm gonna give you four things, only we'll touch on just one today. But last week we talked about the first ingredient is strong direction and challenge by a loving friend. In other words, it took Mordecai, a friend, at this point her father, to step into her life, to basically love her enough to confront her, and say, Esther, you need the courage now to step it up. You are living in denial. You are living in delusion. And he loved her enough to speak to her. And so, uh, in some our cases, we talked about it may be a parent for you. It may be a counselor. It may be a, a, a mature friend. Uh, it may be your spouse i thank god for my my spouse jerry's been a tremendous mordecai to me along in these years and had to confront me to move me on with god at different points where i did not want to move and uh but it took a strong challenge And, and we we mentioned last week that we need people that love us enough to say you know you've got talents and gifts and a calling on your life that you're just not fulfilling up to this point even your pains and disasters of the past god wants to use for the present and the future and you're not stepping up and we need people like who are mordecai in our lives now if you're saying i don't have a mordecai remember it's okay you be a mordecai and we've got to each look for esters that we can step into their lives and love them enough to disrupt their lives that they might grow into godliness and maturity and become heroes and we talked about Esther would never have gotten out of that place without a Mordecai to move on. But understand this, God wants to make all of us here Mordecais because the world and the body of Christ is filled with Esthers who are sleeping giants and are just going through the motions and singing the songs but are not stepping up. Now let me move on to the second point here before I get carried away. So who's your Mordecai and who's your Esther? The second we talked about last week, and I didn't have time to develop it, and many of you came to me with questions afterwards about it. And uh, we talked about that it took crises and hardship to shape Esther. In other words, God sends into your life and my life crises and hardships because when that comes, it forces us to decide who am I, what am I about, who do I serve, and where am I going? crises have a way of stripping away all non-essentials and bringing you down to bare bones and will bring forth out of you hopefully if you don't get bitter God and the person God's called you to be now you may not know this but God has a PhD in storms I mean he's got all types of storms to send into our lives he has hurricanes he's got tornadoes he has twisters He's got thunderstorms. He's got earthquakes, but they come in all varieties of shapes. But God is a specialist in storms, and you can't read the Bible without seeing very clearly God sending storms into people's lives, all the way from people like Jonah, and maybe you're here today and you're running away from God, and you know something. God sent a storm to get Jonah back, and maybe some of you are in that type of storm, but for the most part, He sends storms to believers to mature them, and. If you read Matthew 14, which was part of my devotional time this past week, it's Jesus, he's just fed the 5,000, and he sends the disciples into a boat. He, it, says, it says in Greek, he makes them get into the boat and sends them out. And he goes up to a mountain to pray. And as they go out into the boat, and a big storm breaks out, and Jesus isn't even there. Jesus is out there praying. I mean, thanks a lot. But he makes them get into the boat and he sends them intentionally into a humongous storm where they, they think they're going to drown. And where are we? Where's God? What happened? Where's the abundant life? You know, the whole thing there. They, and because and, when a storm hits, you're out of control. You don't know what's up and what's down, and you're no longer in charge, and, and something's got to break here or you're going to die. And, and, uh, but for, you know, for some of you, it may be an accident or a sickness or a relational breakdown in your family or with friends or community, uh, money issues like unemployment, whatever it might be. But if you're the person that says, my life was not like this before Jesus, well, that's true, you know, because God loves you enough to call forth out of you, you, the real you, and he's trying to shed off of you all the garbage you've picked up along the way, and it takes throwing you into storms to shed that off of you, and that's what it took for Esther. Esther wasn't going to move unless a crisis came into our life where she had to make some choices. Now, she could have made the wrong choice, but at this point, she made a right one. And... and um, But Jesus was moving the disciples, as you notice, he keeps sending them into storms. And difficulties was he wanted to show them himself. He wanted to give them greater revelation of who he is and of intimacy and wanted to mature and develop them. And to do that, he kept sending them into storms. And I mentioned last week um, this passage in uh, Jeremiah 48, verse 11 and 12. And I must have had a dozen people approach me after the service about it because I went by it so quickly. Uh, look it up when you get a chance. Jeremiah 48, verse 11 and 12. And it's, it's the picture when God brings judgment on Moab, a country called Moab. And he, he confronts them because they were so lazy and lax in doing God's work. And they would not allow themselves to be poured out by God. And he gives the illustration of this, of wine, which in ancient times when they would make wine, they would put it in a jar and, you know, do all the stuff they got to do with fermenting it. But there would always be this thing called lees or sediments on the bottom of the jar, which would give it a lousy taste and a, a foul odor, and so what they would do in ancient times is they would pour out the jar into another jar, and it would leave sediment. The, they pour out into another jar and get rid of a bit more of the sediment and junk on the bottom. Then pour it out into another jar, and so it, the, the odor becomes wine-like and good, and it tastes good. Now, what God said was to the Moabites, "You did not." Respond or let me pour you out from jar to jar. You were rebellious, you were lazy, you're at ease. And as a result, you're as, a, as people, your wine, you smell. You taste lousy. And the point is that crises, every time you go through a crisis or a hardship that God sends you into, you come out differently. But there has to be more than one. I know you're saying, I went through that. God says, no, no, you don't understand. It's got to be poured out over and over and over again your life. That, And every time you do, I take something of flesh that smells, that's not of me, that's in your life, that is removed as a result. So you might be a beautifully tasting wine, and you might smell good. And Moabites refuse to do that. And so part of growing into a, a hero is basically embracing the crises and hardships that God sends your life. We'll touch on that more next week. But so that's why James 1 says, consider it pure joy when you encounter various trials. It's for this reason, because it's the way that God makes godly men and women heroes and moves us from shallow, superficial, self-absorbed faith into men and women of defiance that are heroic, that confront our culture and make a difference. Now, point three, which which is the point for today, is this. And it's found in verse 16. And this is the third ingredient. There's one more. But this is the third, and we'll stop here today. And it's this. It's practical obedience which requires a personal choice. Now, let me explain that. It often takes a crisis to get us moving and to get us to obey. In fact, for some of us, if it is not an absolute crisis where we have nowhere else to go, we won't move. We will stay right where we are. It's almost like God has to shoot us out of a cannon to get us moving. But you'll notice in verse 15, Esther does the third ingredient, and that is she practically obeys. She makes a personal choice. She says this, Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa. And fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Underline that word. I will go, and if I perish, I perish. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, On the third day, Esther puts on her royal robes and stands in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. Now, undoubtedly her, her heart is in her throat, she's sweating, her life was on a line. In other words, when you act on something to obey God, that decision and you begin to move on it, something is ignited in you. Something begins to be transformed in you as you begin to move. That's happening in her life here. And uh, growth is accelerated as we make practical steps of obedience. And uh, so she's now acting on what she's determined to do. She doesn't know how it's going to turn out. And she goes up in front of the king, verse 2, and he sees Queen Esther standing in the court. He was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given you. Now understand, he's not planning to give her half the kingdom. That's just kind of like the thing you say, honey, what do you want? You know, up to half the kingdom. But he has no intention of giving her half the kingdom. But uh, he's asking anyway. But at this point, she, she got past the first test. She's still alive. But she's not asked yet. And who, now understand, she's been lying this whole time to him. The whole marriage has been built on a lie that she's a Jew and she's a believer. He thinks she's a pagan like everybody else. And then she's got to ask for the king's edict to be reversed, which we'll see later is almost impossible to do. Once the king says it's done, it's done. And uh, to go against his number two man and all that. And uh, so, uh, but right now her goal is no longer survival. Of her queenship, of her status, of her power, of her money, of her beauty. Uh, what she, she doesn't care, regardless of the consequences, she's decided, I'm going to obey. Now what happens is, she says to the king, listen, um, with your permission, verse, um, verse 5, I'm sorry, verse 4, if it pleases the king... Let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther says. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared, and they were drinking wine, and the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given you, and what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, he's really buttering her up, it will be granted. And Esther replies, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Now, meanwhile, Haman, if you read the rest of the chapter here, Haman then goes home. He thinks things are going great. He uh, tells his wife and his friends, he starts boasting in verse 11, of all his wealth, his many sons, he's got ten sons, and all the honor of the king and now the queen's honoring him to go to this great banquet tomorrow. And, and then in verse 14, his wife gives him good godly counsel. She says, have the gallows built verse 14, 75 feet high and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it and then go to the king, with the king to the dinner and be happy so in other words, she's obeying but nothing's changing I want you to catch that as she's practically obeying things are getting worse not better have you found that out to be true? as you respond to God, there's a whole principle of timing as you sow you don't always see the result right away There's a sowing, time for the sowing to take place, then there's a reaping. But there's a waiting period. I know we don't have a lot of farmers here, or gardeners, a few of you gardeners. You you just don't throw the seeds down, and bam, comes the tomato plant. You have to wait. Well, she's obeying, and things are getting worse. These 75-foot gallows are being built for Mordecai, and the decree of annihilation is still in effect. Now, here's the thing. When you obey, you feel like very often like... You could die. You see, for her, by obeying God, she chose to possibly die. If I perish, I perish. That's the famous line. If I perish, I perish. And in other words, when we obey, very often it feels like it's going to be a disaster. Very often it feels like, I'm, I'm gonna, I could die out here if God doesn't come through. Because the issue that comes, when you're in a crisis and you, you've got to make some practical steps of obedience, the issue is, is God good? Will God come through for me? I hope so! Because if he doesn't, I'm going to be in big trouble, and, and, uh, but as we obey, the principle is God develops this defiant, heroic faith that transforms us as we obey. So now the promises are true, right? All the God's promises are true. If God is for you, who can be against you? Surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. God says, "I will never stop doing good for you, all the head, head on your hair, all the hairs on your head are numbered." And all these promises are true. but um, obedience can still look like it's going to lead to disaster. In fact, for Esther, it could very well have led to death. And uh, because for some of us, and I, I heard someone say this to me just this past week, they said, Pete, listen, uh, I will not obey because if I do, I don't know what God's going to do. And if he does this, I, I don't want that, so I'm not going to obey. So basically, God is working for you. And you're serving God very much on your own terms. But that's not how God develops heroic mature men and women, heroes like Esther. It takes obeying even when it looks like it can lead to disaster. So let me throw out some examples for you. I want you to think about this. And at the end, I'm going to give you some time for silence to reflect on what does this really mean for you to practically obey because it does require a personal choice. Now, you'll notice that she has the community that she belongs to in Susa pray for her. And fast for because there's power in prayer to help us practically obey. And we do need each other as we move out. But she has got herself to make a choice. In other words, she can't hive off other people. Before God, she's got to decide to practically obey or not. No one can do that for her. now. So, for, And our choice is to cooperate as God brings those things into our midst. So, for example, at work... For you to be honest, for you to be truthful at your job, maybe is going to lead to a loss of a lot of money. And so you say to yourself, it feels like I could die if I obey God practically at work and are honest and have integrity. Or maybe it's using your gifts and your talents to serve God beyond what you have in the past. And it feels like for you to step out, I mean, you could fail, people could laugh at you, you could fall on your face, all oh, your parents said, oh, I'll look at you again, and you're just afraid. And so, but to practically step out can make you, and I know you, some of you talk to me, you're scared to death to do that. But it's practical obedience because you're in such a time as this. For some of you are afraid to grow in Christ. Some of you, because you don't want to be called a fanatic or a nut by your family or your friends. You say, I, I don't want to become one of those. You know? But others, I think if I continue to grow in Christ, if I join the school of equipping, or if I get in growing strong in God's family and develop more consistent spiritual disciplines, or if I get involved in our community and involved in relationships or take leadership, if I keep going on this, on this God thing, and now I've come to Christ, you know something? I don't know how my spouse is going to take this. I mean, he or she, they're not moving like I'm moving on this thing. It could, it could bring tremendous disruption in our relationship, and I don't want that. So you know something? I'm staying right where I am. Or, you know, my parents, they're going to think I'm nuts. Or my, or my friends or co-workers, I don't, I don't, I don't want to disrupt all those relationships if I really grow in Christ. And so you know something? I'm going to stay right where I am. I, I'm afraid to practically obey, because if I do, it could lead to disaster. And some of you are right there today, as you look to your future, what God's inviting you or calling you to. Uh, for others of you, it's, it's getting out of your culture or your church background uh, and say, I'm going to grow into maturity, even though it's so different than how I was raised or the cultural background I come from, even, even what I know of church. But I'm going to grow into a lover of God and a lover of people, even though it feels like this is scary. I could die out here. I'm gonna step out and practically pursue Jesus and get involved. For others of you, it's decluttering your life. In other words, not being so frantic, running all over the place so busy, but actually cutting out your schedule and resting a lot more and let God run the world. It's a very practical, obedient step so you can hear God. You know, for me, I I know as we've moved into this whole you know Elks thing and building, as we've gotta move or whatever or buy this building, I mean, for me, practical obedience has been to not freak out and to not try to make it happen in the flesh, but to try to listen to God, get counsel, but listen to God and rest in Him and trust Him. Uh, But that, for me, has been a very practical obedience requiring a personal choice day by day to rest in Him. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're seeking God, but you're not sure you're really a Christian yet. And for you, practical obedience is to come forward at the end of the service, pick up a track, talk with someone about what it really means to be adopted as a son or a daughter of God, what it really means to have a personal relationship with God, not be religious, but have a relationship, and to find out what that means, and to really make the step of saying, yes, I'm not there, I want to be there. It's a practical step. Or maybe you're tired of wrestling with the same sin over and over and over again, you keep going in circles. And um, it's going to someone, a friend in a community or a home church, and going to them and saying, you know something? I am really wrestling. And like Esther, getting some help, getting some prayer, getting some friends to stand with you, but not hiding it and making believe everything's honky dory. Or maybe you're saying, I know the Bible says no sex outside, no sex outside of marriage. But you know something, Pete? Uh, I'll be single the rest of my life if I do that. I'll be lonely. Um, It feels so natural, and you know something, it feels like I could die. If If I go against the grain of everybody around me, it feels like it could lead to a disaster. Or maybe you're getting yourself involved in a relationship right now that you know is destructive to you, you know it's not honoring to God, but you're tired of holding out and you're afraid. Well, practical obedience requires a personal choice. It can feel like death. It can be very frightening. We talked about marriage earlier. To work at your marriage, If you're married here today, to look at your issues inside and what are the hindrances in you to loving your spouse well? Friends, there's probably nothing more scary to do something than that. But practically obey God by looking at yourself and what are the hindrances that cause me to not be soft, to not be gentle, to not be loving to my spouse. It can feel like death to work at maturing as a married individual. And uh, to be vulnerable, soft, tender, let down your defenses and self-protections. I have people say to me all the time, Pete. That is the scariest thing in the world. I'd rather go to a big church and sit there for 10, 15 years. I'll go to four services a week, but don't ask me. Don't ask me to be vulnerable and let my defenses down and tender and open to other individuals. That is more frightening than death. C.S. Lewis said it well. He said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. And the body of Christ is not known as being a very loving place. But my friends, God's calling us to mature into godly men and women and to make practical steps, personal choices, to mature and grow in our ability to love well. I can go on to stand against your codependent family of origin. Many of us come from families that were seriously codependent, sick, ways of relating that really were unhealthy. And as you now, are as an adult, or a teenager, or middle-aged, or even elderly at this point, as you try to break out of that and relate to people in a healthy way, it feels like death. It's frightening. But it's a very practical step. It's a practical move. Some of you, it means listening to your Mordecai. You've got a Mordecai, but you know something? You don't want to hear Mordecai. You don't want to hear that good friend, counselor, parent, pastor, whoever it is in your life trying to talk to you about where you are right now. And for you, a practical step is to say, hey, you know, Morty, Joey, whatever your name is. Right now, I feel very stuck. I don't really know where I should be going. Do you have any observations of what it might mean for me to get unstuck and to grow in God or move on with my life in a healthy way? But to ask that question is very practical someone that you trust, and someone that you obey. I'm talking about obeying the promptings of the Spirit of God in your heart and saying yes to them. So whether it's bitterness or anger, it's offering that back to God. Instead of staying stuck in your anger and hatred toward so-and-so, whoever did that to you, someone had an incident just even coming up the stairs here today, but saying I want to offer that back to God, a practical step, God melt that anger and dissolve it into something loving and tender. I can't do it myself, God, but I'm offering it back to you. You see, Esther could have stayed right where she was. She said, "You know, Mordecai, I'm not going to do it. It's your problem. They don't know I'm a Jew here. I'm not going to open my mouth. You'll all be dead anyway. You're not going to say anything. And I'm going to make it through this. And so I refuse. And you know, she could have had a lot of excuses. I tried to put myself in her shoes. All the excuses she could have used. You know, Mordecai, I'm not political. I'm social." I don't deal with all that political stuff of decrees and laws that's... I wasn't trained in that. I was trained in beauty. You know, it's not my thing. You know, I never asked for this. This is horrible. All these people, they don't... The king doesn't want this. The people around me don't want this. I I can't do this. And she could have been a victim. Do you know how many of us are victims our whole lives? I couldn't... know, Pete, I can't step up because of my spouse, or my friend, or my parents, or or, or, or my co-workers, or my financial... I can't! And we're victims. And we blame everybody else on why we're not practically obeying. What she does here is she takes responsibility for her life. Your spouse can't. What I love about this text is we believe in community at New Life Fellowship. As you know, we've got 13 communities. We encourage you to get involved relationally. And we believe in that. God's built the body of Christ to be the body. And we want home churches. We want to pray for each other. We'll do that at the end. But friends, there's an individual responsibility nobody can do for you. Esther herself has got to make a call. You, right now, you are here for such a time as this. We had a discussion the other day, a few of us, who's called to the ministry? You know, I'm called to the ministry, I'm called to the ministry. Every believer in Jesus Christ is called by God. Everywhere they go, in everything, they do. Every believer, everywhere, in everything. We're all called here, just like Esther was called here. You are called to God by God and for God. His hands on your life for such a time as this. And the personal choice you've got to make today, 1998, October 3rd, is Am I going to make the practical steps of obedience, whatever that is for you, that God's inviting you to do? Or am I going to sit around saying, No, it's his fault or their fault. It's too difficult, too much opposition. You don't know who's around me, Pete. Or take responsibility. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember them? Daniel 3. Because you can't control what's going to happen, can you? And many of us like to control. This thing of maturing is not controlling. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to bow down before Nebuchadnezzar. Remember that? And, and, or be thrown into a a blazing furnace. And they said, Nebi, if we are thrown into a blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us. But even if he doesn't, because they didn't know, we want you to know that we will not bow down to you. And they threw him in. They did not know if they were going to get out of the furnace. Esther did not know if she was going to perish or not. That was not the issue. I read a, uh, a couple of articles this past week about a couple of German Christians during World War II. One was named James von Moltke. Many of you have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But James von Moltke was a 26 year old German Christian in the 1930's in Germany. And as Hitler came to power uh, and the war began in Europe, he realized how evil this was. And it's very hard to go against your own country. Now, he had an opportunity with his wife, he gave him a lot of wealth, a lot of education, to go to London and move there. In fact, their bags were packed. They had their apartment picked out, the curtains picked out, in their London apartment. They're getting out of here. And God spoke to him, practical obedience to stay. And he got drafted, he got put into Nazi intelligence because of his background, and for the next five years through 1944, as a believer, worked for the Nazis, and uh, what he did was he tried to stop the deportation of Jews to the camps. And he also tried to stop enemy soldiers who were captured from being executed immediately. And uh, he worked for the Nazi, anti-Hitler underground within the whole the old Nazi army. Very interesting story. But finally, he was betrayed in 1944. And he was sent to prison. And uh, he was in his mid-30s at that point. Lovely wife, kids, family. And he wrote many letters, 1,600 letters to his wife, Frida which are to this day saved. And uh, make a long story short, he was eventually he was executed right before the war ended. And his wife wrote this, it was much more bitter to lose your husband as a soldier fighting for Hitler than to lose your husband as a soldier fighting against Hitler. It's a great comment. In other words, yeah, God was for him and, and, and he, he did perish. And so did Dietrich Bonhoeffer, some of you know him. He was living in New York City when the war broke out. He was a German theologian in in Manhattan. He moved back to Germany, tried to overthrow, you know, as a professor there within the organized church and eventually got executed himself. But the promise of Jesus is this. If you obey me, whoever has my commands and obeys them, John 14, 21, write that verse down, John 14, 21. He says, whoever loves me obeys me. Think about that. He who loves me obeys me. In other words, he doesn't say he who loves me will sign this confession of faith. Not he who loves me will perform a lot of religious activities. He who loves me will practically obey me. And then he promises this, I too will love him and show myself to him. In other words, I will reveal myself in a greater way to that individual that steps out in practical obedience. There'll be revelation, personal intimacy uh, in your life. You'll be transformed. You'll have an understanding of me you did not have before. Esther walked in that. Not only that, people around you will be changed. Others will be influenced. So listen, like Pete, remember Peter in John 21? When Jesus said, you're going to get crucified, and Peter said, well, what about John over here, you know? And Jesus says, don't worry about him. You follow me. The Lord says to you today, don't worry about, you know, this guy and this lady. And it, just you, follow me. You practically take steps to obey what I've got in front of you right now. Now remember, most of the practical steps of obedience are very little. For the guy with the loaves and fishes, it was just giving those loaves and fishes to Jesus. Everybody else was holding on to their lunch. For David, it was taking the five stones and going up against Goliath. You know, for Paul, when he was in prison, what was his? His, He was was singing praise in prison in Philippi. That was what his step of obedience was. Instead of complaining, murmuring, cursing the Romans and everybody else, he's worshiping God. His was to give thanks at that moment. I don't know what it is for you. But... um, uh, Moses, he was 80 years old. You know what it was for him? To offer his life to God at age 80 and feel like I'm supposed to die any moment now. I'm old. I'm retired. And say, here's my remaining years, and God used them mightily. I don't know what it is for you. My question is, what is your little step of obedience today? What is it? I want you to think about it for a moment. What does it mean for you to practically take a step of obedience today? Remember, as Mordecai said to Esther, if you don't, there are consequences, sure. God will raise up somebody else. But God says, I'm, this is for my glory and for your good and for other people's good. I know some of you are saying, you know, Pete, if this was God, it wouldn't be so difficult. That's not true. Are you kidding me? God often asks us to do things that are difficult that we don't feel like doing, although we affirm feelings here. Again, it's a place of friends and support. We want to support you and encourage you. But you know something? Nobody can make that decision for you but you. It's yours alone. It was Esther's alone. My question to you is, what do you want to do today? Because you are called by God, just like Esther. And he's placed you in your family, in your occupation, in your neighborhood, in this church. He's got you alive. You're in New York City. What? Does it mean for you to practically move on with God today and take a step of obedience? You know, Judas, Judas lived three years with Jesus as his home church leader. He had the 11 apostles as his small group, and he fell. Now, think about that for a minute. If that doesn't humble you, nothing will. Imagine having Jesus as your home church leader, doing Bible studies every week. And then the 11 apostles are your small group, and he fell. Now, I don't know how proud you may be, but I hope that humbles you a little bit of your need for grace, your need for the wind of the Holy Spirit to help you to take a practice. This is no joke, to take a practical step of obedience for, for you today, because your journey is like nobody else's in this room. It's different for every one of us. So don't think you're strong because you're not. But God's power and the spirit and grace are available to you. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to, right now, just where you're seated, I want you to think for a few minutes. I want you to think about specifically one area, or max two, what does it mean for you to practically, like Esther, make a step of obedience today? As you're doing this, I want you to think of this illustration because I believe many of you are in this spot today. I like kittens. I always like cats. How many of you like kittens? The rest of you, God bless you. <laughs> but I like cats. But when I was a small kid, I, we had a little porch. And stray kittens used to go underneath the porch a lot and take refuge. And I remember we used to try to get the kittens out. And, uh, but they were so, they were so afraid. They'd gotten beaten up by the world. They were so hostile, and, you know, they just were afraid. They, they didn't trust anybody, human beings. And uh, every night, we'd leave food there, you know, a little milk and a little cat food that smelled good. And we'd, you know, we'd try to get them to come out, and they would tell me I'd take the food and run back in. And, uh, but the world had been cruel to them. They didn't trust anybody. I remember putting a cardboard box there. We, we were going to catch one, and, and we'd put food in it and milk and this big box, you know, with an opening there. And, and uh, we waited, you know, for hours, and finally a little kitten came out, and, and one of the kittens went in. And I remember grabbing the box and just, you know, closing, capturing the kitten, you know, bringing him inside. And, you open the box and, you know, I thought the cat should be happy, you know, we're taking care of him now. And he's just in a corner, you know, just, eyes he's wild with fire, you know, just not moving, petrified. And, you know, go to, you know, touch him, you know, just want to kill me. It's like, oh, my, you know, fire, and wildness and the anger that came out of the little kitten. And the kitten didn't know that all I wanted to do and all we wanted to do was, was we just wanted to feed the little cat. All he wanted to do was shelter the little cat. All he wanted to do was provide a home and a better direction in life for that cat. But you know something? He was born in the wild. And he was so fiercely independent wild, he just wouldn't receive it. You know, I think some of us are like that kitten. God comes after us, and we're so, we're, we're, we're so afraid. We're hiding in a corner. And we roar and anger and get mad as God tries to draw us near using these kinds of things. And we're just afraid. And yet God's trying to give me and give you shelter, direction, food, love, and guidance. He's trying to bring you home. And there we are hissing in the corner. So I want you to right now just take a moment and close your eyes and invite the worship team forward. And I'd like us just to be silent. And I want you to be before God, just you and Him, and ask yourself the question, or ask God the question, what does it mean for me to practically obey today?